Hello, listeners. This is Labor Know Your Rights podcast, brought to you by the National League of Justice and Security Professionals, where the members come first. I'm your host, Dave, and today we'll be discussing myths. The first myth I'd like to discuss is their strength in numbers, often used by the labor movement. This is true, but it is only one of many factors. It is much easier to request something of an employer when you have, say, a 100 members with you. But the other factor in doing such requests is how supportive are those members? If you have a 100 members who rarely attend meetings and are not willing to risk their jobs to make a stand, that's not that powerful. But if you have even 20 members who are pretty militant and willing to make a stand and fight for their rights, now that's power. A common myth is that unions make unreasonable demands causing numerous strikes. This myth is untrue because unions are a democratic body and the members are bargaining unit will take a vote whether to strike or not based on the demands that they're asking. Exactly what is an unreasonable demand? It depends on your viewpoint. Of course, an employer is going to have a different viewpoint on that than an employee. The employer is going to think that he should have total control of where his money goes from the profit his company makes. An employee to think it's a reasonable request to ask for reasonable wage for the work he's doing. Over time, what used to be considered unreasonable is now common practice. Such things as the five-day work week, eight-hour work day, vacation time, sick time, Things like that change over time. What exactly would an unreasonable demand be? It would be addressing a problem that doesn't really exist, coming up with solutions that do not solve the actual problem. Do the options being are advancing reasonable? Are there other solutions to the problem that would be more acceptable to both parties? We all know a strike is a form of work stoppage. But it is often a way to bring balance between employers and employees that is typically unbalanced. How is it unbalanced? Well, let's take a look at that. An employer has the ability to terminate, to suspend, to engage in character defamation, to transfer an employee, to bring lawsuits against an employee, to harass an employee, degrade or alter working conditions, and actually move the work in some cases to other locations, or the threat to use any of the above. On the other hand, an employee has the ability to strike, picket but not strike, boycott in circumstances, initiate lawsuits if they have the money, carry out slowdowns and sick outs, lobby, file a grievance, depending on the nature of the issue, of course, are threatened to use one or more of the above. We also need to remember that there's a huge imbalance in the amount of resources an employee and an employer has. It's far easier for an employer to take action and sustain it than it is for an employee to sustain things such as a strike. Unions and corporations are both too big and don't really care about the workers. To discuss this, We must really look and compare what is a big corporation. When we look at big corporations, we are talking about companies that are valued in the billions. And when we compare a union 
their income at the best, even the largest ones, would be comparatively in to a few hundred million at the most. So in reality, there's a huge imbalance between corporations and labor. These corporate assets can be used to fight unions and affect campaigns and affect the community at large by affecting the economy of the communities where they do business by simply removing the business to a different location. The reality is that unions have been on the decline since the 1950s. In 1955, unions represented about 35% of the non-agricultural workforce. In 2011, that figure was down to approximately 12%. That makes today's figures approximately 16 million out of 154 million workers. Since 1980, unions have lost millions of members due to industrialization. If unions had the same percentage of members as in 1950, the figures today would be about 54 million. So by looking at not only the income and assets of both, but the membership of unions declining, we can see that there is no real comparison of big corporations and big unions. Another myth is that unions are bankrupting us. This is an extreme oversimplification of the United States economic system. There are many reasons that our economy is in trouble. For example, our military budget is outrageous. In 2010, the world military budget was approximately $1.62 trillion. Well, the United States expenditures for that year was 43% of that grand total. We are followed in expenditures by China and Russia, but their expenditures are nowhere near the same as ours. If you took the next 15 countries that spend the most on military budgets after the United States, their combined total would be less than we spend. I brought up the military budget just as an example of expenditures the United States has and in comparison to the unions in the economy to show that there is no real comparison and no value to this myth. One of the things that we need to understand about the economy in the United States is what's going on in wealth polarization. Let's take a look on a report from put together by the Center of Budget and Priorities. The 30 years following the end of World War II was a time of great prosperity and 95% of the workforce kept pace with that growth. The last 30 years has shown a slowing in the economic increase, but there has been a huge shift. The real change is that the bottom 90% of the workforce has seen their income increase only slightly compared to the overall economic growth. Well, the richest 1% has seen an explosion in their growth by 275%. I could go on for quite a while about the income inequality that has resulted in our economic policies over the last 30 years. But it'll be simpler just to put some links on our webpage in the show notes for you to review if you so desire. Let's move on to another reason our economy is filling. Starting in 1964, our corporate tax rates 
started decreasing from 52% to 48% in 1964. The 1981 Reagan Economic Recovery Tax Act initiated drops to the entire rate structure of the tax system by 25% over three years. The act also produced significant decreases in estate and gift taxes. The Tax Reform Act of 1986 by President Reagan consolidated tax brackets from 15 to 4, and income tax rates of the poorest taxpayers increased from 11% to 15%. Meanwhile, the income tax rate of the wealthiest individuals was reduced from 50% to 28%. The Act also eliminated tax deductions on IRA contributions by high-income taxpayers. The George W. Bush tax cuts of 2001 and 2003 lowered rates for families that earned double the median income and left rates for median income families unchanged. The benefits of these cuts are clear. If made permanent, the Bush tax cuts are projected to funnel 31% of the cuts' benefits to only the top 1% of the wealthiest taxpayers. And a little note on tax loopholes, dollars and since notes, General Electric has benefited immensely from such loopholes. General Electric, the third largest U.S. corporation, turned a profit of $10.3 billion in 2010, paid no corporate income taxes, and got a tax benefit of $1.1 billion on taxes owed on past profits. And from 2005 to 2009, according to GE's filings, the corporation paid a consolidated tax rate of just 11.6% on its corporate rates, including state, local, and foreign taxes. This is a far cry from the 35% rate nominally levied on corporate profits above $10 million. There have been a couple of studies that show that unions have little or no effect on the economy. I will include links to these studies in the show notes on the webpage. There are many other factors that contribute to the economy in the United States. But we can see that this myth is an extreme oversimplification of the economy, and the fact is that unions have little effect on the economy. Unions deal with wages, hours, and working conditions. What about other issues? When considering this question, one must understand there's three categories in bargaining. One is wages, hours, and working conditions. That means a union puts together a proposal in those areas, and such proposals must be considered by management and bargained in good faith. The second area or category are those that are called permissive. That means they can be bargained on, but there's no mandate for a bargaining in good faith, nor are there grounds for which a strike would be called for. The third category would be areas that would be considered illegal. In other words, in bargaining, you can't get around a statute that has declared something illegal. One other area that a union cannot bargain in regards to is how a company runs its day-to-day management. This is usually spelled out in great detail in what is known as Management Rights Clause in the Collective Bargaining Agreement. Now, as far as why unions do not get involved in other issues, well, they do. For example, the AFL-CIO sponsors its own college, the National Labor College, targeting the educational needs of working people. 
Unions have been known to be involved in environmental issues. Uh, the apartheid regime in South Africa, they have fought over the North American Free Trade Agreement, also known as NAFTA. A few specific examples are in St. Louis in the 1960s, a large local union of the Teamsters Union became directly involved in community organizing. During the era of the Civil Rights Movement, certain unions devoted significant resources to the fight against segregation and proved to be key allies of Dr. King and the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. The Mine Mill and Smelter Workers Union, which later merged with the United Steelworkers of America, helped form the Association of the National Mexico-Americana to organize Chicanos in the Southwest. In the current era, the Service Employees International Union has started a fight for a fair economy as a large-scale mobilization against the economic crisis. The National AFL-CIO has undertaken its own campaign around the demand for work, which has included the involvement of several central labor councils in the effort to organize unemployed workers. And now, final myth for this episode. Workers are forced to join unions. First, we have to look at how unions are formed. There's basically two ways. When a majority of workers state that they want a union, an employer can recognize it, or the workers in that bargaining unit can vote a union in. Unions often push for a union shop agreement in their CBAs because employers will often try to divide the workers by making some workers think that they will get a better deal by not being part of the union. A union shop means that part of the CBA makes it a employment condition that an employee must be a member of the union. By law, a union is the sole representative of the members in that bargaining unit, and therefore there cannot be two unions, nor can a person hire an attorney to represent them as part of the union. The responsibility of the union is that they must represent every member of the bargaining unit in a non-discriminatory fashion. Now, if a member has a legitimate religious reason against being a member of a union, they can be exempted from being a member, but will still be required to give the union dues amount to a charity and will be still represented by the union. The main point is that unions are not imposed upon employees, but are a direct result of the employee's actions and desire to have a union. In some states, it is illegal to have uh, union shop clauses in CBAs. Those are known as right-to-work states, and we've discussed them in Episode 5. Where this is the case, a union often imposes what is known as an agency fee. This fee covers the cost for representations provided to that bargaining unit. So the bottom line is that no one is forced to become a member of a union. It is an agreement between the employees and the employer worked through by the union. When an organization such as a union is mandated by law to represent all people that they could in a bargaining unit, it is only reasonable that all those members pay a fee for those services. In this episode about myths, we will be covering many more myths 
in upcoming episodes. The production of these episodes have been sporadic of late, but due to some changes in reducing my hours at another job, we will be producing one of these every three weeks, sometimes even sooner. I've also upgraded some of my equipment and software so that we can produce a better podcast for you, the listener. I hope you enjoy the better quality of the sound. If you have some suggestions for future episodes, questions, or comments, we now have a webpage at www.laborknowyourrights.com. That's a wrap. Labor Know Your Rights has been brought to you by the National League of Justice and Security Professionals, where the members come first.